now that the middle class has reached this size, scale matters. So it's pretty clear that we cannot sustain a middle class of 5 billion or hopefully even 6 billion continuing down this current trajectory. I'm Raj Kumar, and you're in the DevX Book Club. Maybe you're a global development nerd like me. Maybe you work at the UN or an NGO, or maybe you're just excited to hear from some of the world's leading authors on the most important issues of the day. Either way, you're in the right place. Grab a snack, get a comfortable seat, and don't worry if you haven't read the book, you're very much welcome. Get ready for our discussion. This month's book club author is Homi Karas. Homi is an economist and a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution's Center for Sustainable Development, where he studies the political trends that influence developing countries. Homi has authored and co-authored multiple books on topics ranging from frontier technologies to the sustainable development goals. His most recent book, and the one we're talking about today, is called The Rise of the Global Middle Class, How the Search for the Good Life Can Change the World. The middle class is the most successful group in world history, but today it's facing a bit of an identity crisis. The realities of automation, climate change, and other factors are straining the once ubiquitous middle class dream, and younger generations are questioning whether it's really all it's cracked up to be. The book traces the evolution of the middle class all the way from its roots in Victorian England and ultimately offers a new policy agenda that could pave a way forward. Great to be with you, homie. Wonderful to be here, Raj. And congratulations on writing this book. And I guess you, you talk about at the very end of the book what got you interested in the topic of the middle class. You, you mentioned visiting a, a fishing village in Malaysia. And I thought maybe we could just start there. Tell us that story. What did you see when you went to this fishing village and what inspired you about the idea of the middle class? Well, I was working at the time at the World Bank. Our primary focus was thinking about people living in poverty. And of course, poverty is something that where the standard varies depending on the country. So I had asked the authorities in Malaysia about, you know, what was the poorest state? And they mentioned a state in the northwest of the country, Kelantan. And, you know, what are some of the poorest kinds of people? And they said, poor fisher folk. And so we went off, we went to this village. And you know, coming from, I was born in Karachi, so I had a kind of preconceived ideas of what poverty should look like. And I arrived there, and this village actually had a very decent standard of life. There was a modern concrete uh, jetty. Every house had an antenna to uh, get TVs. There were motorcycles and cars parked. There was a health clinic. There was a school. Uh, And I said to myself, this is not how I envisaged poverty. I would have called these people more actually having a, you know, certainly an incipient middle class lifestyle. And that led me to start to think about, well, what do I really mean by the middle class and do some research into thinking about that and trying to define it. And that was really the start of a long uh, journey that I've been on. And the book really details kind of the history of this idea of a middle class and 
how it came about and where it's heading. And you talk about how we are near, maybe by the twenty by twenty thirty or so, we're near a point where there'll be five billion people on Earth classified as middle class. But then you sort of call into question the whole enterprise in a way. You know, I think of I think of what institutions like the World Bank, where you used to work, are aiming to do in the world. And a lot of what they're aiming to do is to is to create more middle class people. And that's sort of been the development project for so many decades now. And you're questioning that in a way. And I guess what what led you to think that maybe we need to reconsider what middle class means and whether it's even the right goal? Well, I don't think that I am questioning the goal. I'm questioning the way in which we are developing a middle class. And so I think that what's happened is that now that the middle class has reached this size, you know, by my calculations, there are now more than 50% of the world can be classified as middle class or richer. Scale matters. And whether you think about, you know, the problems of carbon emissions, problems of pollution, problems of plastic in the uh, oceans, problems of the destruction of nature. These are in many ways all problems that have been created by the mass consumption of the middle class. So it's pretty clear that we cannot sustain a middle class of 5 billion or you know, hopefully even 6 billion continuing down this current trajectory. And I think the world knows this, but there are lots of these issues where just frankly scale matters. And so it's something very new. I don't think that people have really thought about that before. And when we went into this project, it was just more is better. And indeed, more has been better for you know many, many people. But it isn't really sustainable any longer, and I think the world is coming to recognize that, and something needs to be done. And how much better for those people themselves, right? I think part of what you're you're asking in the book is whether the original conception of middle class still fits in this modern era. And you, you talk about research where middle-class people who, who are classified as middle-class based on their income feel uh, that life is pretty hard and that they're stretched very thin. And you, you talk about sort of this long-standing idea that you can divide populations into maybe three categories, the, the poor, the middle-class, and the rich, let's say. And the poor are classified by not having enough money and the middle class are classified by not having enough time. And and I guess that certainly plays out in modern society in so many ways and and maybe calls into into question whether the, the current idea of the middle class alone is enough of a goal. Well, I think that's exactly right. And what I try to develop in the book is the idea that the reason why the middle class has reached this size is because it's engaged in politics in a very important way. And politicians have interpreted the middle class agenda as being a purely economic wealth agenda. And that was true for a long time. It's not true today. And I think that what we're starting to see in a few countries is politicians actually understanding that 
if they really want to have a middle class agenda, they've got to take on all of these other things. So places like New Zealand, it's one of the first countries to actually have mental health as one of the priorities of the government's budget. In lots of countries now, in the UK and others, they're introducing into their national statistics data on well-being and happiness. So almost, if you will, what you might call the softer sides of the middle class experience, but nevertheless, hugely important sides of the middle class experience. And of course, in the United States, we're all familiar with the deaths of despair that Angus Deaton and Anne Case have so brilliantly documented. And you see that across the world. The Japanese have a specific name for that kind of stress. In China, there are people who are saying, we don't want to work so hard. And the same in India and place after place, this kind of notion that, you know, you can only achieve the middle class lifestyle if you work these extraordinary hours is being challenged. And what's so interesting about the research, the academic research, is that the research by and large is saying, you know, people have actually got it right. We can reduce the number of hours worked and there's no loss in productivity. You can have the same living standard, no change. So these big experiments in Iceland and other places now, you know, we've had natural experiments thanks to the response to COVID-19, lots of people working from home, people doing four-hour weeks, you know, there's a lot of experimentation about what it means. By and large, I think people are finding that giving people, individual workers, more flexibility in their hours, both the number of hours and when they take them, doesn't reduce productivity. That's a real, what I would call a real middle-class agenda. And it's really changing the way in which businesses recruit people, the way in which uh, people think about what they want to do and how they choose jobs. Is this, though, sort of a luxury of advanced economies to consider these questions of, you know, well-being versus income? Not at all. I noticed, Homie, you don't have in the book really any real mention of Africa. And you say it at the outset. Look, it's it's not part of the story in a way because the middle classes there are simply too small at this point. That's right. So I guess I wonder, does this apply this idea that we should maybe reconsider the notion of middle class from one so focused on income to, to more of a broad definition that includes well-being. Does it apply more universally or no? Oh, I definitely think it applies universally. And that's why I brought up that in uh, China, there are so many people now who are saying, we, we don't want this. So, you know, they call it the 996, you know, nine o'clock to nine o'clock, six days a week, kind of what we sometimes in the United States call the rat race. They don't want to do that. And as I said, I think they're yeah, lying flat. Yeah, they're so lying flat. So the evidence is that even in developing countries, you don't need to do this. And that's my real point. We fall into these patterns by happenstance and by poor policy choices. And we justify those by saying, well, there's a trade-off. If you didn't work hard, you wouldn't get this income. But these are myths. It's like saying, if we don't pollute, we won't have this level of income. Complete myth. You know, the Swiss middle class emit one third, one third the emissions of a US middle class. And that's not because of a lower standard of living in Switzerland, believe you me. 
these are just policy choices that have become sort of embedded in the way in which societies have organized themselves. And because it's never, you know, really risen to a high priority level, some middle class societies have become fossilized, if you will. And the middle class is saying to their governments, hey, no, we don't want this. But as yet, not that many politicians are listening. Is it a question of government policy? I guess I wonder how much is, as you mentioned in China, a culture of 996, of working six days a week, you know, 12 hours a day? Or is there a role for government to come in and say, we're limiting working hours as they did during the early days of the labor movements? You know, we're going to change policies in terms of social safety nets uh, that give people more choices and options. I mean, what, what would you advise governments to do? Absolutely. Look, these are exactly the same arguments as the arguments that were advanced when governments first stopped child labor. We can't stop child labor. It'll be bad for incomes. We need these children to uh, work. These poor families won't be able to survive. I'm sorry, it turns out that actually educating children and having them in school has turned out for societies and for individual families to be a far better investment. So sometimes governments through regulation, need to come in. And that's why we do have government regulation on a number of working hours. So there's all kinds of regulation of the labor market. It just has to be done in a sensible fashion. Are you looking for the inside story on what's happening at organizations like the World Bank, USAID, or the Gates Foundation? Then you need to be reading DevX Pro. I'm Jessica Abrahams, and I'm the editor of DevX Pro. Pro is DevX's premium news subscription, where our expert reporters and analysts take you beyond the headlines, deep into the trends and institutions shaping the $200 billion aid industry. As well as all our news, you'll get access to conversations with global development leaders, resources to help you grow in your career, and a subscriber-only newsletter full of insider news and tidbits. See for yourself by getting a free trial today at devx.com pro. Now, we're about to enter an era, at least many analysts and commentators think so, with AI that could really upend the traditional economic models that we've all become accustomed to. You know, this idea that if there's low-income people, they're the people with the least skills and they're working on, you know, kind of muscle jobs as, a, as opposed to brain jobs. And potentially, we could be entering a, an era where it's actually the middle classes, especially the white collar middle classes that find themselves automated out of a job. Um, and maybe even in more high skilled muscle jobs, like in manufacturing with, you know, with the rise of industrial robots. So I guess, as you think about some of these pretty consequential technology shifts, and, and you imagine a low income country looking to one day become a middle income country, do they need to take some new approach you know, might we see, for example, these numbers start to reverse? You know, you talk about the middle classes increasing to five billion and beyond. Is there maybe a, a fundamental shift potentially happening right beneath our feet? So I don't think it'll happen that quickly. And part of the reason for that is that in developing countries, the rate at which tech, new technologies get diffused is still quite slow. So you know, I'm sure it will have an effect. I do talk about the distinction, the differential between 
what some people call real work and some people call toil. Toil being more manual, repetitive, and work being something which potentially at least is more dignified and more part of the human experience. And so far in history, I would argue that most technological improvements have been substitutes for toil and complements to work. So, you know, the laptops that we all work on now and now that we're doing this interview on, that's a complement to our work. AI is different. AI is different, and we don't quite know how it's going to play out. It could have marked effects on middle-class jobs. However, if it does, it will actually mean that there'll be a tremendous improvement in societal productivity. If we can still solve the problem of distribution, so we'll still be, as societies, as wealthy, in fact, even more wealthy than before, without having to work for it, we may be able to solve the problem of distribution. And then, as Keynes said 100 years ago almost, the economic problem of our time will be resolved. And the question will be, how do we all find purpose in our lives? And there, there's also a really interesting strand of economic uh, research on how all kinds of volunteering, of community relations, people find you know, real, real pleasure in those kinds of things. And we all know that there are certain types of work. Care work is a uh, classic example where the economic rewards don't really match the societal uh, benefits. So I can easily see a uh, scenario where more people go into things which have higher societal benefits, and the wealth that will be created by AI, properly distributed by a, you know, a government, will make everyone better off. So there's a potential for a world like that. But as you are, you know, can see, that will require significant changes in the way in which we think about all kinds of policies and whether governments will be able to put that in place or not remains to be seen. Well, and it might make people happier. I mean, you talk about doing care work and, and you have a term in the book I hadn't heard of before called eudaimonic information, which you say it's a kind of data that tries to measure one's sense of purpose in life. Yes. And you could imagine those measures of well-being and a purpose might improve if people feel like they can do work that matters to society more and do less toil, so to speak. But I guess, as you say, a lot remains to be seen. I, I wonder, in part, you talk about how the question of where the middle class is going is fundamentally consequential, that if you look at the most important countries in the world that they have advanced as superpowers or great powers in part due to growing middle classes. And you talk about kind of the conflict or competition between the U.S. and China in some ways being about their middle classes. Talk, us, talk to us a little bit how, that, how you see that playing out. You know, how, how do you see China, which seems to be at this somewhat of a crossroads, you know, the classic question of will China get rich before it gets old? You know, how do you see it and its grow, growing middle class versus what the U.S. is trying to do at our stage of development? So I think that an early lesson uh, of the post-war, World War II period, when 
the U.S. middle class was really flourishing. It was really a golden era for the U.S. And at the same time, the European middle class was being developed and recovering from the war. And there was this sense that a better middle class uh, in uh, Europe is good for the U.S. It opens up trade opportunities and new job opportunities. And obviously, a uh, strong U.S. middle class was great for uh, Europe. And in some sense, that that would, you know, all help uh, to bring about greater prosperity. Indeed, some people went so far as to say it would help to bring about greater peace. And there were lots of people who thought that a growing middle class would be the underpinnings of more democracy and more peace. And when China was admitted into the World Trade Organization, President Bush, Bush one, explicitly made those kinds of arguments. I mean, he really believed that bringing China into trade, helping to develop China's middle class would shift China more towards a society that would be closer to ours. That didn't happen. And so suddenly people have changed tack to think that it's not necessarily the case that larger middle class in China is beneficial for the middle class in the US. And certainly there have been transition issues that David Autor and others have demonstrated in terms of the loss of middle class jobs in the US. That said, it's quite clear that one of the things that China's entry into world trade has done is that it's kept the price of consumer goods really low. And that's benefited the US middle class enormously. So the jury is still out as to whether this interplay of middle classes across the world is really mutually reinforcing and mutually supportive, or whether it's in some sense in direct competition with each other. I personally still believe that the weight of evidence is that it's mutually supportive, but this is, from a historical point of view, relatively new territory. So, you know, we we do need to see how it all plays out. Yeah, you mentioned this in the book that there's been a rise in authoritarianism and that, you know, in part, it seems like what people, what attracts people to authoritarians is this certainty that they provide, the sense of security at a moment when there may be more middle-class people in the world than ever, but being middle-class doesn't feel as secure as maybe we once might've imagined it. You know, I think about the sort of imagery of 1950s America and the white picket fence and the station wagon. And, and it's a sense that being middle-class was a secure place to be. And, and you're saying middle classes now, they might certainly be middle class by income and assets, and they they're they're very different than someone who's truly poor. But there isn't any security in it. I think that that's exactly right. And one of the interesting things about the way in which human brains seem to be wired, something that we've got from you know Kahneman and Tversky and these behavioral economists who are you know Nobel Prize winners, is that your fear of losing something is a much greater force than your desire to get something. If you have something, you hold on to it, and you hold on to it for dear life. And what's happening now in the world economy is that we're seeing structural change at a pace that we have never witnessed before.
your point about it not being so clear that middle classes are just a win-win for everyone, growing middle classes are, is that, you know, you mentioned in the book, rising authoritarianism in India, and of course in China and elsewhere. But it sounds like you're, you're feeling your bet, even though the academic literature is divided on this and the data isn't clear, your bet is eventually a larger middle class in India will demand more democratic freedoms. I think they'll demand that their government delivers to them things that they want. And what's interesting to me is that many of the things that the middle class wants, like breathable air, are things that turn out to be good for the planet as well. I mean, imagine a world where in this day and age of geopolitics, the US and China said, we need to do something to save the planet. Do you think we'd get any cooperation? None. But because the Chinese middle class is saying to its government, what is the point of growing the economy if we can't go outside and our kids all have asthma? Do something about pollution. And the same is true in the US. There's mutual interest in both sides from saying this. New Delhi just got closed down because of pollution. That's a reaction. It's both a, a, a cause. It's caused by the expansion of the middle class, all these people on motorcycles and cars and things like that. But it's also a response and a reaction. They're the ones putting pressure on India to do something about emissions. Otherwise, there'd be almost no chance that the Indian government would say, we're going to you know, join this global effort. So I think in, in a number of these areas, my reason for optimism is because we've got a large middle class now in, and we're talking now in country after country, it's in Turkey, in South Africa, in Brazil. So, you know, really across the world, you've got this large middle class, and they're all asking for the same thing. And I'm trying to envision what this new model is like when those middle classes sort of get what they want. Because as you say, the danger is if it's the same consumerist model, it will just lead to more of the air pollution as more families in India can afford that scooter, you know? Um, so this is where technology rides to the rescue. Because if the middle class at the same time says, we want more, we want to have it all, but we want to have it all under these different kinds of things, technology will come up with solutions. Look, we are today 150 years after Thomas Edison switched on the first light bulb. And you've got 750 million people in the world without access to electricity. Don't tell me this is a model that's working really well and that the quote-unquote new models are just in some sense to save the elite. These new technologies offer us an opportunity for the first time to really have a breakthrough. On average in Africa, people are paying double digits, 10, 15 cents per kilowatt hour for electricity. Renewables can deliver it for 5 cents per kilowatt hour, even including the cost of battery and storage. And that price is only going to go down. So we've got an opportunity now to do things in a different way. And as I said, there doesn't have to be a trade-off. You can have a Swiss standard of living 
and one-third the greenhouse gas emissions. If we had that, we would be on track to meet the Paris standards. Is it fair to say, listening to you, Homie, that that you and your book are kind of in the tradition of Steven Pinker and the late Hans Rosling, sort of looking at this world that so many people are looking at and seeing as deeply dangerous and uncertain and divided, but you're looking at it sort of with a glass half full and saying, actually, things are better than you may realize if you read the headlines, that there is this kind of underlying secular trend toward larger and larger middle classes with underlying technology trends that might allow them to to actually be sustainable. I mean, is that fair to put you in that category? Of I mean, Rosling and I am delighted to be put into the category with, you know, two of two of my heroes, especially Hans Rosling. But I do think it's fair to say that you can already see the way in which middle class pressures they're pressuring companies to be more sustainable and companies are responding by doing that. And if you now look at the sustainability of companies, you see something really interesting. Consumer goods-oriented companies have become far more sustainable. Defense companies, nothing. Why is that? One needs to solve for its customers. The other, where the customers are governments, just don't care as yet about sustainability. That's not what they are trying to deliver on. It's interesting. So we see these changes. Now, the big question before us is, is the change happening fast enough, all of that, etc.? I would say, rather than being optimistic or pessimistic of outcomes, what I would say is, there is no reason why things shouldn't go well. And if they don't, we have no one to blame but ourselves. What about the countries that you purposely leave out, as you say, rightly, because they don't have large middle classes? But, you know, we often talk in development about the poorest countries having leapfrog opportunities, right? They they went right to mobile phones and, and mobile money. You know, do you see an opportunity for them to sort of leapfrog past some of the problems of the modern middle class and, and to build more directly into some kind of a sustainable model? Absolutely and unquestionably. And uh, I think that, you know, what is slowly starting to emerge is that in this century, we will be having very different types of economies. There will be a huge number of new jobs in protecting nature, in conserving nature that people will pay for. They have to be monetized, but we can develop those kinds of markets. Of course, you've got the whole renewables industry, but just think about what renewables means. A car has something like a modern, highly efficient car has something like 30,000 parts. Very difficult, let's say, for an African country to develop a competitive car industry. An electric vehicle, however, has far, far fewer parts. Can you be disruptive in the electric vehicle space? Absolutely. And you know who's just done it? China, Vietnam, India. Why not Africa? 
I would bet that you will start to get some, you know, African companies because the skills that you need to produce a competitive vehicle that is electric, whether it's a four-wheeler, a two-wheeler, a three-wheeler, or a whatever, it's just so much easier. So these modern technologies are going to break down barriers to entry that have held many of these countries back. That's what's going to allow them to expand. And of course, the simplest thing, which is give them electricity. You know, I feel very confident that after 150 years of you know them not having electricity, we will be able in the next. I don't want to put a time frame on it, but let's say generation one or maybe two generations to be able to give access to modern energy to everyone. It's no longer unaffordable. Well, it is always a pleasure to talk to you, homie, and and especially after you've written this book uh, and provide such a kind of breath of fresh air in a time when everyone feels so down on the global environment and on how things are moving, how challenged we are, and you, you've got a perspective that is both long-term, but also really hopeful. And that's, it's been really an honor and a pleasure to get to speak with you and to, to read this fascinating book and to have this, this interesting conversation. Thank you, Raj. The DevX Book Club is produced by Lauren Evans. Our executive producer is Margaret Richardson with assistance from Valeria del Castillo. Thank you all for joining. If you like the podcast, please share with your friends and give us five stars. And we really do want to hear from you. Please leave your thoughts in the comments or send me a message on Twitter at Raj underscore DevX. To learn what we're reading next, make suggestions for future guests, or submit questions for authors, be sure to sign up for our DevX book club mailing list, which you can find in the description of the show wherever you're listening to this. If you care about global development issues and you want the latest news, don't forget to subscribe to the DevX Newswire at the link in the comments, where you'll get the day's top global development breaking news, analysis, and opinion, as well as the date of the next book club. Until then, do good out there, and thanks for joining.